text so that everything I say can be used against me. There we go. All right, we good? Uh, so last of four weeks on the resurrection of Christ, as we've been talking about, this is in many ways the most important doctrine. I mean, it's hard to say that there's any doctrine that is more important than another. But in one sense, uh, at least the way that the Apostle Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, if this is not true, then everything else is untrue about Christianity. Uh, it ultimately all comes down to this. And uh, hopefully uh, you're, you're gaining a better uh, arsenal of arguments for the resurrection of Christ as a historical event, not only for your conversation with other people about Christianity, but also for your own faith, uh, which, as we've talked about before, this is very helpful to give us reassurance of why we believe the things that the Bible proclaims. Uh, It's important. We have to understand that our faith rests on facts. It rests on historical events. Uh, You know, nowadays, it's common for people to uh, – well, actually, it's been ever since the, the Enlightenment – uh, to separate you know, facts and uh, things like science where you measure data from faith. You know, faith, for most people, they look at that like a realm of personal belief. It's uh, spirituality. There's no facts involved. It's whatever you find helpful. It's whatever works for you. Uh, but in terms of actual facts... Uh, that's something different. And so, you know, people will often say, uh, you know, it doesn't really matter who uh, the historical Jesus is. It just matters who Jesus is for you. And uh, so you can have a personal Jesus that's different than the historical Jesus. Uh, Christianity says all of that is hogwash. All of that is just lies. Because if these things didn't happen, there's no point in being a Christian. If Christ wasn't raised from the dead and seen by many witnesses, then we should just, as Paul says, eat, drink, be merry, party, live your life, do what you want, because tomorrow we die. But if Christ is raised from the dead, then it's worth living as a Christian. And this is why I keep coming back to the resurrection for my own Christianity, as, I mean, my own walk as a Christian. Uh, I am a Christian and seek to, li- to live as a Christian because Christ was raised from the dead. And how do I know he was raised from the dead? Well, the testimony that uh, the Gospels and Acts gives us. And so I want to go over a few of those things, and then let's talk about some of the, the more common uh, arguments against the resurrection. And so let's go over those five E's again. Let's see what we have learned. Uh, by the way, did anybody fulfill their assignment that I gave you two weeks ago? I forgot to ask last week. Did you ask one person, what do you, well, what do you do about the resurrection? Well, if you didn't, you have another chance. There's always tomorrow. Um, seriously, that's really something we should, and when we have an opportunity, uh, get, get that one in there. Put it in question form. Always put it in question form. Everything should be in question form. You know, when people start saying, Things like, well, I just think that, you know, uh, faith is the realm of personal decision, and, uh, but it has nothing to do with facts. 
Um, I think a lot of Christians right then start getting, getting nervous and anxious and what am I going to say? What am I going to say? Just first question is, how did you come to that conclusion? What, what do you mean by that? You're, you're allowing them now to express themselves further, which not only shows that you're interested and listening, but actually allows you to hear what that person believes, which is usually all over the map. They usually just came up with some crazy stuff that they heard here and there, and they don't really know. They don't have no basis. And then that's the other one I always ask. On what basis do you believe those things? On what's, what's your basis for your belief? Because my basis is this. And then people go, well, how do you know you have the right interpretation? Well, then let me tell you about the creeds and confessions. Actually, I say, have you ever heard about the creeds and confessions? But begin with questions. And then as you go through the arguments for the resurrection, form all of them in questions. Never, never make a statement when a question will work. And so the five E's then, the first one is, okay, that wasn't very convincing, but... Uh, Thank you. So, you know, the thing is, I, I debated, should I go over these things again? I'm sure they already got it. I got to go over them again. Because uh, I want to hear, like, you convince me that you remember these things. Because after this class, this is it, you're on your own. Uh, the empty tomb. And who did not, convet, who did not uh, dispute the fact that that tomb was empty? Good. That was, that was, a, little, that was a little better. Yes, the hostile witnesses. That's right, John. Now remember, we just heard from Luke 23, the Jewish Sanhedrin, the leaders of Israel, wanted Jesus put to death. And they knew that Jesus had claimed he would rise from the dead. Because he had done that many times. He had said, I'm going to rise from the dead on the third day. And they're the ones that began the story saying, say the disciples. So, well, actually, before that even, you know the gospel record, they say, you got to put a guard there because he said he was going to rise from the dead. We don't know what's going to happen. You know, maybe, maybe his, his disciples will come and steal the body. And then that was the story that they concocted once the body was gone. The, if, the, if the tomb was full, then the Jews could have produced the body and stopped Christianity. Now, why would the Romans want to show that the, that the tomb was full? Put down the insurrection, but, but think about it. Think about it. You're Rome. You're powerful. You keep order everywhere. You kill people in order to keep order. Now, all of a sudden, some guy that you put to death and you put a, you put a, a guard over his tomb, the tomb's empty? Now, how would that look for Rome? If, there were, if, the, if the body was still there, they immediately would have produced it. And if they had produced the body, or if the Jews had produced the body, what, if, what would have happened to Christianity? It would have failed. Now, this is, this is powerful, guys. And so you, you put it in a question form. Have you ever considered the empty tomb? And they say, what meanest thou? And you say, uh, you say, uh, have have you ever considered the fact that neither the Romans nor the Jews contested the empty tomb? It's very important. 
This is, this is one of the most important evidences. That's followed by eyewitnesses. So now you have people who say that they saw. It's not just an empty tomb, but now you also got people going around saying, we saw him. And the record is that it was the 12 plus the 500. Where would you go in Scripture to show that? 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Very important passage. We all should be familiar with that. That some portion of that should be read at all of our funerals. And guess what? We will all have a funeral. Unless Christ comes first. Yeah. Yeah, they, you know, Paul speaks there, the 12. Uh, it's just sort of code for the originals, the apostles, not, yeah, not uh, Judas, even though he's, he's the true replacement for Judas, not Matthias. But, um, but he just says, yeah, the 12. Because Jesus appeared to them before Matthias was called to be an apostle. Remember, that's an Acts. But it's just a slogan, you know, for the original. Uh, so the eyewitnesses, so now you've got people going around saying that. Now, this is important because they are in the location where Jesus was crucified and purportedly raised from the dead. That's very important, a very important detail. And not only that, but then you have these eyewitnesses that experienced estimated time of arrival. What does that stand for? Please, please, throw me a biscuit. There we go. There we go. It really does mean a lot to me when I hear you say it. It does. Um, just so I know, I'm sure that, you know, I'm not going home saying, you know what, I should have went to law school. Um, which pastors do quite often say. Um, <clears throat> enduring transformation of the apostles. Now, this is critical, of course, because remember, they were hiding. Uh, at the time of the crucifixion. So as we heard in Luke 22, uh, after Peter's denial, uh, well, Peter denied Jesus, first of all. That, uh, that fact alone shows that uh, he, was tr- he was trying to preserve his own life. He was concerned about himself. And, uh, and the apostles all fled. After they see the risen Lord, uh, now things change. It's a game changer. And the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And really the point of Pentecost is, is boldness. They are empowered with boldness. That's the real gift given to the apostles. And they began proclaiming in Koine Greek rather than in Hebrew uh, and possibly in other languages as well uh, that uh, Christ, or that Jesus of Nazareth, is the Messiah. And he's been raised from the dead. And so they are transformed. But their transformation was also enduring. It wasn't only that these guys went from being cowards to courageous, but they remained courageous. And, you know, they continued for, like in Paul's case, 30 years of courageous ministry. Why? Because they had seen the risen Lord. I mean, these three evidences right here, And again, when you're discussing with somebody, you put them in questions. Have you considered the empty tomb? Have you considered the eyewitnesses? Have you considered the enduring transformation of the apostles? 
You know, and when you're at Thanksgiving or Easter or Christmas and, you know, your uncle so-and-so is going off about uh, some program that he saw on the networks about, you know, how Jesus wasn't raised from the dead and he heard the scholar from Duke University. And I think his name is Dr. Jean-Dominic Croissant. And he was saying that, you know, there is no resurrection. You know, you are obligated as a Christian. You are obligated to say something. You don't get out of that. You don't sneak away. You are obligated to confess Jesus at that moment. At least say, well, you know, Uncle so-and-so, have you ever considered the empty tomb, the eyewitnesses? Have you ever considered that? That's why we're reviewing this stuff, so that you'll say that to your uncle. Or your friend, or your coworker, because you believe in something and you know it's true, and that truth isn't just a fact. It's something that sets people free. It's what gives us the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And who are we to say nothing when the ball just got kicked right into our, got rolled into our court? There it is. It's, we're not even pitching it to you. It's on a tee. In fact, it's not a baseball. It's a soccer ball. And you have a bat. Now go. There is no reason to remain silent in that moment. And it's okay if you feel nervous. But remember this. God did not give us a spirit of fear. When you are afraid and you're fearful... That's not from the Lord. God has given us a spirit, or God has given us love, a sound mind, and power, but not a spirit of fear. Timothy was afraid. He, and he was a pastor. And he reminds us, remember, God has not given us a spirit of fear. So do your best to at least put it in a question. Those, are, those three are the big ones. The next two, you know, are a little more technical explanation of Old Testament prophecy. And so we went over some of those. Anybody remember? So, yeah, okay, Isaiah 53 is about his suffering, right? We can actually go back to Genesis 3.15 and the fact that God promised somebody to overturn death, to bring us to the tree of life, I mean, and, and why is that important, guys? Because you're, you're showing, you're, you're, you're sharing with somebody that the whole Bible fits together as one message. Which, guess what? They've probably never heard, never considered. 99% of the world does not know that. Even people who confess to be Christians, it all has one coherent message. And you know why? Because most people have never read it from beginning to end. Even people who say they're Christians or say they believe. And so when we go back to, no, there's actually a plot to the story. It's just, it, it unfolds. And it, it begins with, with our curse, the curse of death, and how it will be overturned to life. And Jesus is the one who fulfills that. His resurrection fulfills that. But then there's also other passages, of course. Remember Isaiah 25? Daniel 12, 
Leviticus 23. Anybody remember what Leviticus 23 was about? The Feast of First Fruits. And how when the harvest would come, when the, when the first fruits would come up from the harvest, it would be given to the priest, and the priest would wave it before the Lord on the day after the Sabbath. In other words, the first day of the week. And what does Paul, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 call Jesus Christ, the risen one? The first fruits. And we're the harvest. He's connecting Old Testament imagery to the resurrection of Christ. These things are, these aren't fanciful like connecting the dots, you know, that I've done with artwork. This is just the plain language that Paul uses. It's all one message. The whole Bible is about Jesus. The life, death, and resurrection of Christ and what it means and how we can be rescued from our sins. Again, not, not given just a, you know, a better life. You know, he's going to fix my problems. But rather, he, he's going to forgive my sins and raise me from the dead. And so Old Testament prophecy points toward this. Also, Psalm 16 is a big one. And you'll never hear the pundits on the networks interact with this one. You'll never hear them do that. They'll only try to pick apart the Gospels. They're never, they're never interacting with the flow of redemptive history and biblical theology. And those are just a few. The last one, of course, is external witnesses. And so there were some outside of the Bible who mentioned this guy, uh, Jesus, who people were saying had been raised from the dead. And can you name maybe three of those? Uh, Okay, there's the Talmud, but maybe the authors? Can Can you think of any authors? Josephus. Josephus is probably the most respected Jewish historian of the first century uh, amongst Jews, Christians, and, and secular historians. The guy did such an accurate job of documenting facts. It's mentioned in Josephus, Tacitus, Pliny the Younger, so Roman historians. Okay? So there are, there are mentionings of Christ's resurrection outside of the Bible. So the five E's, try to memorize them, try to go over them, try to remember your way around them. And, you know, it's like anything else. If you want to get good at it, you got to practice. If you want to get good at an instrument, you want to get good at a language, you want to get good at a sport, it's practice, practice, practice. If you want to get good at being able to explain Christianity to others, you got to get in there. you got to do it. You got to get out of the holy huddle and go talk. Go, go talk to a real non-believer about Christianity and talk about this stuff right here. Bring it back to this each time, and then say, "What do you do with this? What do you? What sense do you make of this?" Because you're really getting your thumb really on the pulse. When you, when you talk about this. After Easter, we're going to go through uh, another one that I have for how do we know the Bible is authoritative. And I think, honestly, those two questions, the resurrection of Christ and the authority of the Bible, or the reliability of the Bible, are really the only two apologetic questions really worth uh, having down well. I mean, there's other things, too. You know, how, how do we explain all the evil in the world if God is good? And that's pretty easy to answer. You live in a fallen world, and it's not going to go on like this forever, and Christ's resurrection is the evidence of that. Next question. 
Um, I mean, really, that is it. Um, you know, the it, this isn't going to go on forever. So, uh, what what are you going to do once we get off the title page and into the book? Because this life is only a title page. You got eternity to look forward to. Yeah, but what about all the suffering? It's not going to go on forever. That's God's promise. What, what, what are you going to do if this really happened and you don't believe it? Then what are you going to do? And so get back to the resurrection is how I would, how I would have the conversation go. All right, a few, uh, a few uh, arguments against the resurrection. These, these are the most common that you hear. And if you've heard of others, um, please chime in uh, and we can talk about those. So... You know, your Uncle Joe or whoever who, you know, is convinced because he watched some program or he, you know, read a website. He read a blog. He read a blog, and now he knows everything. And, uh, and now he's saying, well, haven't you heard of the swoon theory? Now, you know, the swoon theory is that Jesus wasn't really dead, that uh, he, he burst loose out of the tomb. Uh, I don't know how he rolled the stone away. I was looking at some archaeological um, reconstructions of rich tombs, tombs for rich people in uh, Palestine in the first century. They were very large, these huge crypts. They were very sophisticated. They were carved out into the side of a mountain in stone. And then they would have a, 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 a doorway and they, and they would build like a little ramp. And sometimes that would be carved out of the side of the mountain if it was a type of granite or something. And they would have a big stone. You know, in the ancient world, they were able to make millstones and big stones that were very round and quite flat. And they would, they would have that stone up top on the ramp. And they would have this little blocker that they would set in place. And then once they put the body inside, and it was a process where they would bring it in. They would anoint it. Uh, well, first they would bring the body in, wrapped. They would roll the stone down. And it would take several men to roll the thing back up. And then they would come back in. They would anoint it with oils and spices and that kind of thing. Uh, and then they would roll it back. Sometimes they would place several people inside this over time. So the thing could be rolled back and forth, but it was enormous. And it took several men in order to do it. Uh, the idea that Jesus, you know, burst out of that or, you know, by his disciples uh, was able to get loose, um, I mean, you have to explain how they got through the Roman guards. And then you have to explain how the evidence says that the disciples were afraid at that time. So there's just no evidence for that. And it, it just, it, honestly, it takes more faith to believe that these scared disciples fought past trained Roman guards uh, than it does that Christ rose from the dead, in my opinion, anyway. Uh, so the idea that Jesus could come loose after <laughs> you know, being flogged and crucified uh, is pretty preposterous. There's just no credibility in claiming that Jesus didn't really die. The Journal of American Medical Society, a secular publication, made the conclusion on page 1463 on their issue of, of uh, March 21st, 1986. Clearly the weight of historical and medical evidence indicates that Jesus was dead before the wound to his side was inflicted and supports the traditional view that the spear thrust between his right ribs probably perforated not only the right lung, but also the pericardium, and heart, and thereby ensured his death. 
Accordingly, interpretations based on the assumption that Jesus did not die on the cross appear to be at odds with modern medical knowledge. Now, I don't expect anybody to memorize that, but you could if you have Uncle So-and-so who's just saying, it's the swoon theory, the swoon theory. You say, well, have you ever heard of the, the Journal of American Medical Society? And uh, you say, you know, go Google that. Go look that up. Or then send them an email. And in a question say, what do you do with this? I mean, that's a secular, credible, very credible piece of media. And trying to reconstruct everything, they said, no, this guy was really dead. There's no way. Say what you want. Come up with whatever theory you want. But the idea that he fought his way out is just ridiculous. Then, of course, there is the stolen body theory. Matthew tells us that the Jewish leaders tried to circulate that story, even bribing soldiers to go along with it, which is quite possible. But the stolen body theory doesn't account for which E. Okay, but maybe they were lying. That's the one. That's the one. If the disciples stole the body, which is possible, right? Let's admit, it's possible. It's hypothetically possible. They timed it out. They watched when the guards were changing, or maybe, maybe there's only one guard. He went to sleep at some point, and they just said, all right, you know, Peter, James, you go this way, you go that way, let's go. And they get in there, and they roll the stone back, and somehow, some way, they get away with the body. And they hide it, and no one's ever found it. And Christianity is all a hoax. It's possible, hypothetically, right? But then how do you explain that? That's what I come back to. How do you explain the fact that these guys didn't become rich? They didn't have strokes of good luck. Their lives got harder. And nobody ever came out and said, hey, it was just all a hoax, leave me alone. They all died for this. And some people would say, well, yeah, well, people die for things sometimes that, you know, that are crazy or false. But these guys died then, you're saying, for something that they knew wasn't true and they weren't benefiting from it? And not only that, they all went their different ways and were all martyred in different ways? That doesn't make any sense. So that theory really fails. And I think, honestly, that's about the strongest theory that there is, the stolen body theory. That's why the Pharisees came up with it. There's the wrong tomb theory. Uh, the women went to the wrong tomb. Which E does that not, which E uh, puts that one to rest? The first one. The hallucination theory. These are, again, people in Ivy League schools have come up with these. Um, same thing. You know, they, they so wanted to believe that Jesus was alive, that they believed it. Well, again, the Romans and Jews could have produced the body. Twin brother theory, same thing. What about the legend theory? It says that Jesus was either never taken down from the cross or was left to rot and be eaten by birds of prey or thrown into a common grave and eaten by dogs. These are actual theories that have circulated the last 2,000 years. But that doesn't account for the claim by the Jews that Jesus' body was stolen, a claim that presupposes that Jesus' body was buried and that the tomb was found empty. And also, we have to keep in mind a few other things. It, it doesn't account for the fact that the apostles were making claims to the contrary. If this was a myth, 
anyone could investigate the claims about his resurrection and see that those claims were, in fact, false. If the apostles were putting a spin on their story and embellishing facts about the resurrection, anyone could investigate it to see if it was true. If this was a legendary tale, why did it spread in Jerusalem? Why did they stay in the same place just right after it happened and try to create a legend? That's not the way you create a legend. Uh, Legends expert Julius Muller stated, a legend cannot replace a fact as long as the eyewitnesses remain alive. The legend theory only seems possible if several generations pass from the time of the event. And there's another guy, an Oxford scholar of ancient Greek and Roman history, A.N. Sherwin-White. He's argued that the span of two full generations is insufficient for myth and legend to accrue and distort historical fact. He said that in the Roman society and Roman law in the New Testament. The interval between the resurrection and the writings of the Gospels in the 60s was way too short. There were still too many facts known. In other words, you've got to spread the time. And maybe you know, it's easier for us in the 21st century, especially post-Enlightenment, to say, ah, well, these are a bunch of pre-enlightened, superstitious people who, uh, you know, who knows what they believe, who knows what they saw. But remember when these things were published. They were published in the, when this generation was still living. So we just, we just have to deal with the facts here. When all is said and done, the facts show that Christ was raised from the dead. And what do we do with that? That's the question. There's more with regard to how we could uh, show that uh, it's not a legend and uh, other, uh, other arguments that are, tried, that are often used against the resurrection. But uh, before I go any further, any questions so far on that? Yeah, Angela. Yeah, I think the more, uh, I think a far more powerful argument uh, for that, though, is the fact that Christ was raised on the first day of the week. The Pentecost, the Spirit was poured out on the first day of the week. It's the birthday of the new creation, and the apostles met on the first day of the week. Um, end of story, you know. Uh, with regard to the Seventh day Adventists, you know, they're, they, this, they're often very legalistic with regard to Mosaic law. And they want to impose a lot of that. But you know, we're living in the new covenant. And we need to appreciate that. We have a, we're in a new covenant. We're not under the old covenant. The old covenant has passed away. The old covenant was with Moses. The new covenant was inaugurated with Christ. So, other questions with regard to resurrection? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, the text makes it pretty clear when he says, who are you, Lord? And he says, you know, I am Jesus. 
I mean, it's really clear. And then he, he says, he gives account later that he saw the Lord. I mean, even in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, he says that he first appeared to Cephas, then the twelve, then to more, five, more than 500 brethren at once, most of whom are still alive to this day. And he says, and last of all, he appeared to me. The least of the apostles. He's the last apostle. So there, we have every reason to believe that what, what Paul saw on the road to Damascus was Christ in the flesh, the, the same way that the rest saw. Now, I, you know, again, that's very supernatural. How does that happen? He's already ascended into heaven, you know, but you're talking about the apostles themselves witnessing this. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. So, but he, and that's why if we ever hear somebody saying, I'm an apostle, you know, there are no more. What does Jesus look like then? Because to be an apostle, you, you need to have seen the Lord in the flesh. The only point of the apostles was to uh, provide the, the canon uh, of Scripture, to be the instruments and the organs of God's special revelation to complete the word of God, his testimony. Uh, we were, last Sunday, somebody was telling us about a church that they visited to, they visited, and uh, one of these new, hip, chic churches with the names that have a very short shelf life, and uh, seemed to be popping up all over. And, and apparently the sermon was all about, you know, you're an apostle, an apostle is one who goes out, who is sent, because the word apostle means sent, and so you're an apostle at work, you know, because you're sent by God, you're an apostle. You're an apostle just like the apostles, because you are sent by God everywhere. And uh, there was really no gospel, apparently, in the, in the sermon. And so this person was talking about it, and my nine-year-old heard all of this, and he blurted out, uh, well, that's just crazy. You're not an apostle unless you've seen Christ in the flesh. So if a nine-year-old gets it, and you know what? That's important. That's not being snarky. That's not a snobby, snarky, reformed person. That is essential Christianity. Essential Christianity. And we start tweaking with that and messing with that, we are, we are inventing a different religion is what we're doing. Because the, the apostles were given to complete the word of God. There's no further revelation now. And we can get this. This is, not, this is not that difficult. So jot it down, keep it in your Bible, remember it, and try to, try to uh, bring it up in conversation. I have a whole other section which we're not going to get to about can science rule out miracles, uh, which is kind of interesting to talk about, but maybe we can do that on the other side of, uh, of Easter if you're, if you're interested. Um, short end of it is we need to remember that science, because people often say, to quote uh, Nacho Libre, you know, I don't believe in God, I believe in science. Uh, uh, you know, it's amazing to me how science is pitted against Christianity, where science is not a religion. Science is the measurement of data. It's the measurement of things, things that God has made. And so the measurement of things that God has made will never be in conflict with Scripture. I have no concern about what scientists are going to discover. Now, sometimes they come up with wacky, crazy theories, but they are just that, 
theories. A theory is different than a conclusion. A conclusion is the measurement of data. And can, can the measurement of data rule out a miracle? Absolutely not. You're talking about something that is hypothetical and, and could happen that's supernatural. They say, well, you know, science has never found somebody to rise from the dead. Well, that doesn't mean that nobody ever did because the scientist didn't have that opportunity to, to bring it into the scrutiny of his laboratory. If you had eyewitnesses, it's very possible that it did happen. There are many things that scientists said, well, we've never seen that happen, that later, wow, that does happen, such as the fact that the Earth is not the center of the solar system, which science believed for thousands of years, even the church believed. And that, too, was pitted against Christianity. Well, the Bible says that the sun rises in the, in the east and sets in the west. So you believe the Bible, don't you? The sun's going around the earth. Don't be messing with what the Bible says. A guy through his telescope by the name of Galileo says, no, it doesn't work that way. I believe that the Bible tells us how to get to heaven, but it doesn't tell us everything about how the heavens go. And even Calvin and Luther believed in what was the common science of the day, that the sun was going around. Well, we've got to understand that it didn't, doesn't conflict with the word of God, that we were just trying to read too much of the word of God, or too much into the word of God, when in fact it doesn't conflict with science. Science is just there to measure data. And sometimes we discover more. But in no way should we ever be concerned that, that science is going to discover something that overturns anything of Scripture. Not if, we, not if the, the word of God is the word of God. It either means that we were interpreting something improperly in the Bible, or we just didn't know enough about science. But it can't in any way rule out miracles. Let me stop there, and if you have any questions, I'll stick around for a few minutes. Uh, as I said, on the other side of Easter, there will be no Sunday school next week, and then on the other side, we'll go through how do we know, uh, how can we be sure that the Bible is reliable. So... Father in heaven, we thank you that you have given sure, incredible testimony of your risen son, that this was not done in a corner, but was seen by many witnesses. And we thank you, Father, that we can have assurance of these things that your word proclaims, and Lord, that we can stand on a great foundation for our faith. And Father, we pray that our our trust in what you have said would grow more and more as we see that it is reasonable And that these are things that in fact happened in history. And we thank you that through the risen Lord, we have the forgiveness of sins and eternal life, the greatest gift that we could ever receive. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.